Welcome back to The Polished Carrot, a podcast show dedicated to all things sparkly because all great stories begin with a piece of jewellery. And I'm Janita, your host this evening from England, the countryside, which is finally thawing out. So my African DNA can thaw out as well. The book I'm reading from was kindly gifted to me from the publisher and um, it's been written by Francesca Cartier-Brickle called The Cartiers, The Untold Story of the Family Behind the Jewellery Empire. Now this is an enchanting jewel of a book to say the least. A must must read for all jewellery lovers. Now I know everybody can't afford the book during these trying times in the pandemic so I asked Francesca um, for permission to read from her book and she kindly agreed so yay for that so I can share this story with you which is wonderful because you know we all have a p- favorite piece of uh, Cartier jewelry don't we and um, I think this time is just beautiful I mean it's over 500 pages listen my ASMR fans would love that that is 500 pages of pure Barkley Joy, and I can't wait to delve into the first chapter with you. So, uh, grab a drink, have a cup of tea, or a gin, or a cocktail, or a coffee, get comfy, and uh, settle down, and um, I'll be recording chapter one. Books have been written over the years on Cartier, but none have delved so deep into the true story of the family behind the firm. When the late Hans Niedlofer published his pioneering history, Cartier, Jewelers Extraordinary, he told me how much he regretted having to work in the dark, handicapped by the lack of personal information about the members of the family who created this international empire synonymous with the 20th century elegance and luxury. Thereafter, although exhibitions on Cartier over recent decades have shown so many beautiful objects, most of the people most responsible for designing, making and selling them have remained in the shadows. Now the veil has been lifted and the real story of the creation of Cartier has fully emerged. In this book, Francesca Cartier Brignell tells us of her dramatic discovery of old family letters and her 10-year quest to fill the gaps in the family history and provide new insights into both the business and the private lives of the personalities involved. The Cartiers follows four generations from Louis-Francois, the scholarly founder, to Jean-Jacques, the the author's late grandfather, but at its heart are the three brothers Louis, Pierre and Jacques, whose close bond and distinctive individual contributions coalesced to create one great name and style in the early 20th century. Through her own words, unearthed by Francesca's impeccable research, We can understand how Cartier survived revolutions at home and abroad, two world wars, financial crisis, and catastrophic recession of the 1930s, which so many rivals went under. As the great-granddaughter of Jacques, 
and the granddaughter of Jeanne Jacques. The indefatigable author has succeeded in bringing the Cartier story to life. No one could have done it better, besides drawing upon the incomparable resource of her family's correspondence and journals. She has recorded many reminiscences from Jean Jacques himself and tracked down veteran employees who recalled nostalgically that working for Cartier was like being part of a family. She, was, she has left nothing to chance, following her forebearers' footsteps from Paris, London and New York to Sri Lankan sapphire mines and Middle Eastern bazaars. She's travelled to the places Jacques visited in India, met the descendants of his clients and examined the jewels he sold them. Her achievement has been to synthesize 10 years of intense biographical research into an engaging and accessible account of the greatest success story of 20th century jewellery. Jean Jacques would have been immensely proud.
Part 1 The Beginning Dated 1819-1897 Father and Son Louis-Francois and Alfred Living History Apologies in advance for my terrible pronunciation of French phrases, names and places. I do not speak French, but I will try my best to pronounce everything to the best of my ability. So apologies in advance there. The auction room was buzzing. From five continents, jewelry lovers, collectors and dealers had come to play their part in what town and country had built, the jewelry sale of the century. Photographers lined the back wall. A large team manned the phones. And as the clock struck 10 a.m. on June 19, 2019, the first of five Christie's auctioneers took the stage at his podium in New York's Rockefeller Center for what would be an epic 12-hour event. It's not every day, the Financial Times enthused, that a vast number of museum-quality jewels hailing from a single world-famous collection finds its way under the hammer. Belonging to Sheikh Hamad Altani, the 388 lots up for sale in the Maharaja and Mughal magnificence auction spanned five centuries and some of the most extravagant rulers in history. An Aladdin's cave of treasures, Forbes had called them. If only one could find a lamp for the genie to help finance the bird. Many of the Cartier pieces came up in the afternoon session. Lot number 228, a 1922 bejeweled belt buckle brooch made for the Marchioness of Cholmondeley, was always expected to garner significant interest. With its enormous 38.71 octo- octagonal emerald centerpiece surrounded by diamonds, sapphires and more emeralds, it was typical of Cartier's Eastern-inspired Art Deco creations of the period. Bidding started at $400,000, initially arising in increments of $20,000 and in leaps of $50,000. It didn't take long for the digital tracker on the screen behind the auctioneer to surpass the jewel's $500,000 to $700,000 estimate. When the hammer finally came down, the piece of <coughs> The price of over one and a half million dollars drew gasps and a round of spontaneous applause from the audience. It wasn't the only Cartier piece to be fought over that day. From a Belle Epoque diamond and platinum corsage ornament to a 1930s Tutti Frutti brooch, a rare graduated natural pearl necklace, and a Maharaja's ruby and pearl choker, there were 21 Cartier pieces in the sale. Eight of them reached over $1 million. One exceeded $10 million. In total, the number of Cartier lots accounted for just 5% of the overall number, but ended up contributing a quarter of the final $109 million value. A staggering result. And yet not altogether altogether surprising. Through the 21st century, antique Cartier pieces have been amongst the most coveted items of jewellery on the planet. If you see an old jewel side Cartier, one jewellery expert revealed, 
you can triple the value. Those pieces are just in a different league. In 2010, the Duchess of Windsor's 1950s Cartier Onyx and Diamond Panther became the most expensive bracelet ever sold at Sotheby's. When Barbara, Barbara Hutton's 1933 Cartier Jade Necklace went under the hammer in Hong Kong four years later, it made history as the highest valued jadeite jewel of all time. In 2017, Jackie Onassis's Cartier 1960s tank watch sold for triple its estimate, while in the record-breaking 2016 sale of my favorite Elizabeth Taylor's jewels, it was a Cartier necklace that came out on top, of course. With such an illustrious worldwide recognition, it is perhaps hard to imagine that it was ever any other way. But with intense competition and a willing parting of millions of dollars for jewels bearing that familiar artist, I'm tongue tied, artisanalized signature, couldn't be further removed from how Cartier's founder started out. Exactly 200 years before the headline-grabbing auction in New York, Louis-Francois Cartier made his entrance into a very different world. The Apprentice As a child, Louis-Francois Cartier would have loved a formal education. He longed to study the classics, to delve into the sciences, to learn about great artists. But his immediate future was not up to him. There were seven mouths to feed in the Cartier family, and as the eldest son, he had a responsibility to play his part. After rudimentary schooling, it was straight out to work. His father, Pierre, had managed to secure him an apprenticeship in the jewellery trade. It would be hard work for little pay, but professional jewellers were part of the Six Marchand de Paris, a prestigious group of skilled merchants and artisans who were considered middle class. The prospects for the young Cartier would be far better if he had followed his father into the metalworking industry. Every day, Louis-Francois would walk the 20 minutes from his cramped family home in the Marais area of Paris, along the narrow streets with no sidewalks, towards La Halle. Here, amid the bustle of the grain exchange and the smells of the oyster market, was where the city's jewellery craftsmen and specialists were based. His new boss, Monsieur Bernard Picard, a fabricant or maker of jewels and a well-established workshop on two upper floors of a large six-storey building on 31 Rue Montagul, right by the church of Saint-Eustoche. Being a jeweler's apprentice was no easy undertaking. Workshop managers were renowned for treating their jewelers like inmates of a kennel. The boys worked grueling 15-hour days for little reward. They were not spared slaps, boxes on the ears or kicks, recalled one of his contemporaries, Alphonse de Fouquet. While elsewhere, craftsmen of Master Jeweler Fabergé remembered how the most important instrument in an apprentice's set of tools was the whip. No pupil has ever learnt without one. Not everyone lasted the distance, 
but Louis Francois, who had witnessed his father rebuild his life from nothing, was fiercely driven. A decade before the birth of his eldest son, Pierre, Quartier had been fighting in France in the Napoleonic Wars, which had been captured by Wellington's army. For years, he'd been locked up in a disgusting, overcrowded, diseaseful prison hulk in Portsmouth. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Frog in my throat. Portsmouth Harbour, wondering if he'd ever make it out alive. When finally freed after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, he had been 28 years old, with not a cent to his name, no prospects and no living parents. Returning to Paris, he'd found work as a metal worker, married Elizabeth Gerardin, a washerwoman and the daughter of a merchant, and became a father. Now with his son completing an apprenticeship, Pierre just hoped for a better life for the next generation. Fortunately for, Fran for Louis Francois, it was a reasonable time to be joining the jewellery trade. The French arist aristocrats, who had fled the capital during the Revolution and the pa Napoleonic period, had slowly returned under the new Bourbon monarchs, and their presence helped to jumpstart renewed demand for luxury goods. Court life was still a pale imitation of the Marie Antoinette era, but there was a trend for smaller, more discreet items of jewellery, and Picard catered to this market. As Louis Francois and his fellow workers completed items, they would stamp them with their master's point con an official marker's mark, certifying the provenance of a jewel. In Picard's case, it was his initials BP, separated by the image of a river, a play on the French word rivière, which means, which means both river and diamond necklace. But if any of the apprentices hoped to have their own stamp anytime soon, it was a distant wish. The chances of progression on that scale was limited. Even when Picard was, sorry, one day retired, he and his eldest son and Adolphe to take his place. A few months before his 21st birthday, Louis Francois, unsure of his future prospects, married his 18-year-old sweetheart, Antoinette Goumonoprez, known as Adèle, was not originally from Paris. Her father, a tablemaker, had moved to the capital from Rouen in search of work and extended Guillaume's family, sorry about that, had joined him several generations squeezed into one house together not far from the Cartiers. It was in this Marais neighborhood on a cold February morning in 1840 that the young couple set their vows in a large Gothic-style Catholic church in the St. Nicholas de Champs. After the wedding, unable to afford his own home, he moved in with Adele's parents. They would start a family there. An adored only son, Louis-Francois Alfred, always known simply as Alfred, was born later that year. As he turned five years old, he was joined by a little sister, Camille. Paris in the 1840s was a far from ideal place to be bringing up children especially in the working class. Overcrowding had become an epidemic 
as the new inhabitants from the countryside settled in any space they could find, leaving no room for parks or recreation areas. Overflowing drains and open sewers, open sewers were hotbeds of disease, and infant mortality rates were high. Louis Francois worked hard for Picard, hoping desperately, as his father had done, to be able to offer his children a better future than his past. But for many years, it was far from certain.